Great, good morning. If I could uh, gather you guys together, it would be wonderful. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you've got a Bible, you could turn to the book of 1 Peter. I was thinking about this, I'm sure most of you agree. If we're really honest, life is one long learning experience, isn't it? And we don't want to be those that, that think, oh, I've stopped learning, I've stopped picking up. Um, I know my son, um, he's disappeared, he's here. Isaac got his school report this week. You know, there's that whole challenge, isn't there, about actually, what are you learning and how well are you doing? I'm aware that it's not just school kids. Some of you guys, you'd have had your annual appraisal. You get this at work, don't you? How's it doing? What are your targets? What are your goals? How are you getting on? Often we talk, don't we, about that sort of personal development. And I guess there's that sort of thing, isn't there? How well are you really doing? Are you really growing? And in some respects, if you're not, some would say that's a little bit unnatural, isn't it? It's almost like, well, surely we want to get better and better. Now, if we're honest, we, we can think generally that's about me and how I'm doing. So I was very fortunate this week to go along and watch some of the tennis at Wimbledon. And you can think it's the one person on the court. But you know that if you swing your head around, you can see they've got a sort of box of about 20 people that have made this one person better. And I feel that actually that's quite similar to the church. I think that as Christians, we can sometimes feel like, golly, I'm out here trying to play this Christian life. And it can be hard work or it can be going well. But what we've got to realize is almost actually there's a whole box of others that are there cheering us on, that are actually involved with us. I love that about the weddings. I was at Andy and Eva's wedding. And what you're really trying to say is actually what we want to do is we want to connect together with one another that we could do as well as possible. I think this is what Peter is challenging the church on. And I'm going to be reading about that to you now. So if you've got your Bible, it's 1 Peter 1, 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Some that have been coming regularly, we know that this is actually the third I'm doing out of six. And you say, Pete, you've made a mistake. You read these verses last week. Well, there's more than one sermon in these verses. So I'm going to read them again. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, every week we love reading your word. Every week we ask that you'd speak to us. We thank you that the spirit that inspired these words is here this morning. And we, we do want to be those that, that hear from him. It's almost like, what's the author going to say to us today? I pray that you would speak into every heart. We're not here by mistake. We're here because God wants us to hear from his word. We do want to hear for your glory. Amen. 
I do want to say, just before I kick off on here, I've quoted the, um, a guy called Tim Chester and Steve Timmis on several occasions. This is the book. Uh, I, I thought I ought to wave it around and give the guy some credit. I mean, it's been an absolutely fantastic book, and I've referred to it lots this morning. Basically, I would say that in this passage here that I've been reading, and last week I said it as well, and I don't want to keep going over that, is that your actions are shaped by your identity. And last week I preached all about the fact that our identity is that we're the family of God together. Okay, here's the challenge. If you over-focus on community, which is what I preached about last week, you kill it. I think if you over-focus on community, you can kill it. You see, I think the answer is not community. The answer is actually the word. And so what Peter was saying is community should be a fruit of the word and the impact in your life. And if all we were trying to do was to create this perfect community, we could be in trouble because what we're really trying to do is be a people of the word. I read from the New International Version. Some of you may have what's called the ESV And it says there this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so what it's basically saying is, look, from this obedience to the truth, which is the word of God, you've been purified by the gospel to live out a pure love. So the answer is not the pure love. The challenge is the pure gospel. You see what I'm saying? That is really what the focus is about. It's about what is the word in us? Or do we just want to pretend to be this perfect community? It's the gospel that purifies us from the sin, which I talked about last week, which breaks up community, malice and deceit and hypocrisy. It's the gospel which changes our identity. We are to crave the spiritual milk, which is the word of God. Now, please, I know that this is illustrations used elsewhere, and sometimes we can think, oh, is that a baby thing? Now, actually, I think this is a positive thing. So, so it's a bit like, you know, Levi, if we all look at the back and Google and R and ooh, and you think, what a wonderful baby, you know what I'm saying? When he's crying at, at two o'clock in the morning, you know, it's not for a fringe benefit. This is for something essential. He wants milk. You know, there's this natural craving and desire that, that he just needs to take it on. I'm sure Rekha could say the same about Caleb. You know, this is not something childish. It's something that they're desperate for and they're eager for. You know, they, they don't yet enjoy curry and all the other things that we enjoy eating. What they want is milk. What they need is milk. And, and it's almost like that, that desire, that earnestness, that, you know, seeking after. I mean, you know, was it every four hours... It's almost like he's trying to take that as a picture and say, that's how we should be about the word. If we were really like that about the word, it would change our lives. Are we those that are desperate for spiritual milk? You see, the more we read and listen, the more we learn. And what we learn is that the good news of Jesus crosses the gap. It reaches out. It it brings about a sincere love, a love for one another, love from the heart. Now, you might say to me, oh, Pete, this is all getting a little bit gushy. I have been to two weddings in two days. I'm feeling gushy this morning. You know what I'm saying? My cousin got married yesterday, and Andy and Eva got married on Friday. But actually, I think biblically, love is not just an action. I think it is a feeling. And I think it's almost here. As you get the gospel, you will feel a love for one another. You see, 
The gospel is permanent and everlasting. And yet so often we get caught up in the fleeting. We, we think about things that are fashions and trends and ideas, which are all fleeting. But actually the gospel, the word of God, is an everlasting thing. It's a long-lasting thing. What Peter is saying, and I talked about this last week, is, hey, for you guys that are unfamily, do you remember, you know, Roman society was considered a family, and Caesar was almost considered the head of the family, but actually you became Christ's. You no longer say Jesus is Lord, you've become unfamily. I talked about that last week. He said, actually, those that feel unfamily, you never stand alone. I'm not advocating we all become Liverpool fans. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying you'll never walk alone. This is meant to be our theme song. What I'm trying to say is, biblically, we grow up together. The spiritual milk that we're to crave is not an end in itself, but it grows our salvation. If these babies, as cute as they are, don't put on weight and change, the parents would take them to the doctor. You could look at that baby and think, oh, isn't that lovely? Isn't that great? You know what I'm saying? If, if, if these mums are still getting up and breastfeeding when they're 18, we've got problems. You know what I'm saying? You, you think, man, this is not quite right. You know what I'm saying? Something's gone wrong, hasn't it? Not a nice picture. We'll move quickly on. <laughs> you see, we are naturally to grow and to change. And we are spiritually to grow and to change. Chester and Timmis in this book say this. So we do not read the Bible simply to fill our minds, but to change our hearts. Not simply to be informed, but to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We read the Bible to stir our affections, our fear, our hope, our love, our desire, our confidence. We read it until we cry out, Jesus is Lord. So that's what, he said. that's what I'm trying to say. Peter is writing to them and saying, you've got to get a hold of this word because it's, it's the solid, everlasting, permanent word of God and it will bring about change in you. This whole thing is a sense of change and excitement. If you remember last week, I looked at even the therefore prepare. I mean, that was the word. Just a quick recap on that. If you know the, the story of the Exodus... You know that when they were to celebrate the Passover, you know when the, the plagues had happened, that it's almost like we're going to celebrate the Passover. How are they to celebrate the Passover? He said, tuck your cloaks inside your belts because basically God is going to lead you out. That was prepare yourself for the move of God. God has seen that you've been in slavery. He's taken you to freedom. He's taken you to in your inheritance. He's going to move you on to your promises. This is this word prepare. And again, it's like Peter is saying, hey, remember that picture from Exodus? Get excited. Be prepared. We are a family on a journey together. We should be committed to growing, not just numerically, but I do believe that the kingdom of God is a growing thing. I believe that whenever Jesus talked about the kingdom, it was about something growing, a mustard seed that grows. You know, a farmer sows the seed and you get a harvest. I do believe that we are to grow. And you say, oh, Pete, why, why do we think about it? Well, I believe that's a kingdom thing. But I believe we're to grow as well in our own depth and love for him. Leaders in the Old Testament were often referred to as shepherds. You'd know that. 
Let's be frank. If, if you know just a little bit about the Bible, you'd know Psalm 23. Was it? The Lord is my shepherd. It's almost like if we're going to understand anything of leadership, we understand something of shepherds. We don't say the Lord is my CEO, do we? Now, I don't know if it's because it was an agricultural community or whether actually the shepherd was just a bit, much better picture. The shepherd, we know, wasn't somebody... I mean, they didn't have fields in those days with hedges all around that just chucked the sheep in and said, look, I'll come back once a week and throw you some food. The shepherd was there day in, day out. The shepherd was there morning and night. The shepherd was a smelly person, you could say, from society's point of view, but he loved the sheep. He knew the sheep. He counted the sheep, not to fall asleep, but to care for them. You know what I'm saying? He was involved in those sheep. And that is the picture of what I would call pastoral care. The term pastor is really the old term for shepherd. I would consider it a privilege to be called the pastor of Redeemer. Because actually, I think, well, he is the great pastor, and if I could be a pastor, what a privilege. But I think Peter would go beyond this. And what he would say is, don't just call the man at the front the pastor. You are to be pastors. And I think in this passage, he's trying to charge them. If you remember, it was difficult times. They were being maligned. They were being misunderstood in society. He was saying, I want you to pastor one another. I want you to care for one another. I want you to be actively involved in one another. I want you to know the details of one another. I want you to be family. I want you not just to be separated. I want you to be intimate and know one another, involved in each other's homes, supporting one another in life. And I believe that we can now pull out some things of what I call pastoring one another. Why is this? Because we want to see one another grow. So the first thing I want to say out of this this morning is we pastor one another in everyday life. I personally love Sunday mornings. I genuinely do. You can say, well, it's your job, Pete. If you don't love it, we're in trouble. That is true, but I've always loved Sunday mornings. I just love gathering together with God's people, finding out what's been going on in the week, praying for one another, worshipping. You know what I'm saying? I don't have... You know, James and Charlotte at home. It would be great, wouldn't it, to wake up in the morning and just have somebody strumming in the corner. Oh, great, that's my worship. I just, I love it when we come and we gather together. But actually, that is not the end of it. We are meant to pastor one another in everyday life. What is really important, I think, for Redeemer is what happens between Sundays as well as what happens on Sundays. When um, it was written in Deuteronomy... It says this, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you are to be on your heart. So it's almost like the commands were given. Hey, this is the way you're to live. Then it says this, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. I mean, basically, the people of God understood that this is 24-7. This is life. This is how you eat a kebab. This is how you travel on the tube. This is how you fix your car. This is how you raise your kids. This is how you cope with your job. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church, we loved you so much, we delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And so what I, I would say is that we, we pastor one another in the way that we live life together. 
So I know that we've stood up here week after week, oh, come to Costa. What I really want is I want people to connect. You see, I love it on a Wednesday night because we turn up and there's coffee and cake put on and people just chat. And I always feel a bit, you know, I feel a bit awkward because I'll, I'll be honest, we, I mean, this week, it's by half past eight. I'm saying, right, pipe down, pipe down, I want to do some talking. And what you're really trying to say is, oh, God, I don't want to cut across because I just love people connecting. That's what we're trying to say about. I love it when I hear that people have gone for coffee together or somebody's dropped in on Nairi. I love it. You know what I'm saying? When someone says, oh, they've had someone's kid for a day or they've dropped a meal around or someone's had a barbecue there. I just love any of that kind of involvement. It's like Edward even says, you know, the leafleting. I think it's great because partly I think I'm out and I'm praying, God, I want to see your kingdom come. But partly he's just thinking, oh, it's just great. Having an hour wandering around with Steve, you discover something about someone. You think, I just didn't know that so much. And I think this is how we do life together. We pastor one another in everyday life. Now, what does that mean? Well, this could be a whole thing, and I'm, very, I'm going to watch the time because I, I could get diverted. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. How do we work out this pastoring? There's lots of biblical verses on it. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs on the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Paul writes to them in Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. I would say there's three things that we pastor that I would take out of Scripture. You teach the ignorant. So if there's people that don't don't know things, we want to teach one another. I never realized that. Come on, let's not be proud. But what's it say in the Bible? Oh, well, I don't know. It says submit to one another, love one another, serve one another. If people don't know that, I think, well, let's teach them. I, I mean, let's be really frank, even about... What's it say? Don't give up the habit of meeting together. I would want to teach someone. Actually, it's really important to gather together. Why? Because it says this. You teach those that are ignorant. If people don't know, we teach. That's what pastoring is. If people are faint-hearted, we encourage. So let's be honest, life can get you down, can't it? Sometimes you think, man, I just... I've often thought, you know, keep my head above water... You know that phrase, I feel like I need to develop gills because life is just sort of above me. And I'm, I'm, you know, you suddenly think, God, I'm trying to raise three kids. I'm trying to do the finances. I'm trying to, and, and you can think, hey, man, I can't quite. Actually, if people are, are, are discouraged, we want to encourage them. The faint-hearted encourage. It's not that we've got to teach them. They might know it. We're trying to encourage them. I think that's what pastoring is. So you teach those that are ignorant. You encourage those that are faint-hearted. You rebuke the wayward. Let's be really frank. Some of us know what we should do, just don't want to do it. You know, you, you get together with someone and they think, well, I know I shouldn't really look at porn, but I just do it because I'm tired or because I'm stressed or because I'm hassled because I've done it for so long. And you think, no, no, I need to rebuke you. I need to say, look, that is not a good thing. If you're not sure why, I could show you that from the Bible. But if you carry on doing it, then surely what we need to say is, come on, we need to stop it. And that would be true of other things, wouldn't it? You know, you think, well, actually, I, I know it's wrong to steal off my boss, and I'm chatting about it in my small group, and actually, I think I turn up for work an hour late every day. And what you're really saying is you steal an hour of your boss's time. Do you understand? Oh, God, I'd never seen it like that. 
And if, the, if somebody says, you know, I don't know, a month later, I'm still turning up for work an hour later, you think, well, I, I don't teach you about that. I've already taught you. It's wrong. <laughs> I now need to say, look, you need to get your finger out and get sorted. I almost need to bring a rebuke to you. That can be a challenge, but I think that is what we need to do. We pastor one another in everyday life. That's the first thing I want to say. Because why? We want to grow up. We want to mature. We want to be disciples. Because spiritually, we don't still want to be babies. This is what I think Peter is writing to the church about. We pastor one another over time, is my second point. You see, sin runs deep and issues are complex. And I think just to become impatient, you know, I think, come on, we've got to give people some time. We've got to give people grace. I'd much rather people point a finger at me and say, you know what really bugs me about redeeming? You're just a little bit too gracious with people. (laughs) I think, well, we serve a God of grace and I'd much rather earn on the side of grace than the side of legalism. And so I think, yeah, sometimes we need to go again and again. Encourage again. It takes a while for somebody to understand it in their head and then to change their habits and their behavior. And so I want to be committed. I want us to be a church that are committed to one another over time. That's what I love even about these community groups. You know, we're finishing Alpha and we're going to go into the community group. And what it really says is we're going to be committed to one another. We're going to, we're going to work together. I mean, I expect these groups to last for at least six months until we fill them up and multiply them out again. So for six months, I'm committed to you. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be meeting with you. I'm going to be encouraging you if you're faint-hearted. I'm going to be teaching you if you're ignorant. I'm going to be rebuking you if you're wayward. Yeah, there's that sense of working together over time. Even if people get it right, you know what I'm saying? We face temptation. And, and what we want to say is, come on, let's stand with one another over time. It's not a flash in the pan. I don't think you can pass to someone in one thing and then just move on. It's commitment over time. If we're honest, none of us are spiritual supermen. If you've seen the film, Man of Steel, you'll understand it. But even if you saw it as a cartoon years ago, the the danger is that that Superman gets crashed through 10 buildings and stands up and he's still got every hair in place. The cape is still waving. There's no rip. There's no tear. There's no blood. You know what I'm saying? and, And life is not like that spiritually. We know that it takes time. We know that actually we've got to give people support. So we pass to one another in everyday life. We pass to one another over time. Number three, we pass to one another with grace. Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Now you might say, oh golly, Pete, now you've read that verse, I'm not going to say anything to anyone. <laughs> Who am I to teach anyone? Who am I to encourage or rebuke anyone? I do not believe that Jesus was saying you've got to be perfect. I'm not saying he's got perfect 2020 vision until you can do anything. What he's saying is don't be a hypocrite. A hypocrite, I think, is someone who gets caught in putting on a mask and relying upon themselves rather than relying upon God. I think you can rely upon God and not be perfect and still be involved in helping other people. If we had to wait until we were perfect, we would never help 
anyone. I do not believe that it is what it is about. I believe, though, that we care for one another and we help one another based not upon ourselves, but upon the cross. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live by righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Peter is very quickly saying, actually, if we're going to help one another, we do it because of what Jesus has done. We do it because of the cross. He says in 1 Peter 3 verse 18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. He's saying, actually, it's all about Christ. This is a huge thing for me because what it says is our pastoring is not to make you a better person. It's to enable you to encounter Christ. Otherwise, we just try and make people moral, middle-class people. I don't think the church is trying to put on a moral, middle-class veneer. I think what we want to do is encounter Jesus, the risen Christ. I mean, he rose from the dead. He sets us free. That's what I want to plug you into. The danger is that every example I give feels like a veneer. And if I just talk about the veneer and I miss the cross, we've just peddled the religion. And I don't think that is what Peter is saying. He says, don't make them moral. Help them to encounter Christ. I feel challenged by this even the way I raise my kids. You know, you can say, oh, come on, good and say, share. I'll bang your heads together, you know what I'm saying? No, because I wouldn't say that nowadays. I might have said that 20 years ago. But actually, what I should really probably say is, look, Jesus shared everything for us. Why wouldn't you let him have a go with your car? You see, what I've done is I've then brought the, the gospel into the way I raise my kids rather than just saying I'm going to turn them into moral, good people. But if I'm really honest, I often slip from morality because you guys would look at me and think I'm a good parent. Whereas what I should really be doing is thinking, how do I bring the cross into everything? And I think that even for us as a church. So the danger is I could say, oh, let's meet together. You know what I'm saying? And people think, oh, golly, if I turn up, cough up, sing up, pizza, happy boy. No, actually, what I really want to do is get you to plug into who is God. If you fully understood what Christ has done for you, and now you're going to say this is emotional blackmail. I'm trying to bring the gospel in. If you fully understood that Jesus died for you when you were the enemy of God, if you turned your back on God, if there was nothing good in you, you would say to me, Pete, an hour and a half leafleting is not enough. I want to do all day. You see what I'm saying? Because it's the gospel. Do we say, well, actually, I'm so overwhelmed with what he has done for me. I so would love anybody else in this borough to find out. I would do whatever it takes. You see what I'm saying? How do we say, come on, it's about the gospel? Or how do we say, oh, it's just about a, a task? I think Peter was writing there and saying, come on, we've got to be those that pastor one another with the grace of the gospel. You see, and I've merged it really with my fourth point, we do pastor with good news fundamentally, if we're going to care for one another, build one another up, encourage one another, we must remember Jesus died on our behalf. He rose again. We are welcomed by God by grace. We are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know the care of a Father in heaven. 
You see, the way we pass to one another is so much more than positive thinking, good advice, or legalism. Our pastoring must take us into where this is who God is. And if I could grasp God, it would change everything. Many have said that uh, behind every sin there is a lie. And that actually what we've got to do is try and get to the truth. And when we pass to one another, we want to bring people into a place of the truth. You don't need to offer a new truth. You just need to apply the truth that is there. So if I go through a couple of lies right now, hopefully you'd understand it. Or shall I say, I'll go through the truths and you'll understand the lies that would be the other side. Truth number one. This is how we pastor. This is what we want to build in. God is great. So therefore, I do not have to be in control. Sometimes we want to dominate, manipulate. Out of fear, we try and get things in control. We want to be in control. We want to have our handle on everything. Actually, if he is in control and we really believe that, then I can trust him. I can trust him. I found it interesting visiting John and Nairi this week in the hospital. And, you know, let's be honest, it's their first child. And, the, you know, it's not, it's not the way you'd have planned it for the waters to break at that stage. But actually, they are saying we are trusting God. I just said, oh, wow, yeah, God's in control here. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what finances or what pressure at work. Let's be honest, you know, life is more than a sort of two-hour bubble on a Sunday. But what I do know is that God is great. And if we forget that, we try and get in control. And if we forget that, it affects how we try and encourage one another. If we forget that God is great and that he's in control, we then try and manipulate and twist things around. If we forget this, we try and correct every error. We don't give people enough time to grow, to talk, to allow them space to disagree. If we forget this, we become risk-averse. We can become indecisive. But if we remember this, we can become relaxed and patient. We can talk with people. We don't have to feel we sort everything out in one conversation because we know it doesn't all depend upon us. That's the first thing. God is great. The second thing is this. It affects the way we present the truth, the truth that we're presenting, how will it impact other people. God is glorious. So therefore, we do not have to fear others. You see, so often we sin because we seek the approval of people or fear their rejection. We, even as adults, live on the peer pressure spectrum. But if God is the one that we fear the most, And if we have his approval in Christ, that changes us radically, doesn't it? If God is glorious, we live for him. You see, if we forget this, we're fearing people. Even in the church, you'd be reluctant to rebuke somebody because you're fearing that person. But actually, we should fear God. If you forget that God is glorious, then you you, you you might not confront people, you avoid difficult decisions, you try and second guess what the people are thinking. But actually, if you remember that God is glorious, you are free to serve people. You are free from the fear of man or woman. You can be vulnerable before others because you are secure before God. It totally transforms the way we think, doesn't it? Truth number three. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. Sin brings pleasure, but it's short-term, and it's empty, and it's hurtful. God gives us everlasting joy. 
If you forget that God is good, you become reluctant to serve. You do the minimum. Your ministry becomes a burden. You cannot be bothered. You look for satisfaction elsewhere. You only do what's fun. But if you remember this, you serve with passion, energy, and enthusiasm. You are characterized by generosity, simplicity, and energy. Because you remember that ultimately God is good. And the fourth one. We will be praying for people. I'm going to be winding up. God is gracious. If we remember that God is gracious, then we do not have to prove ourselves. We can aim so often to achieve and prove ourselves. If things go well, we feel proud. If things go badly, we're crushed. We never justify ourselves before God. We never need to because of Jesus Christ. You see, the danger is we live in a world where you're only ever as good as your last tennis game essay or assignment at work. Andy Murray will feel pressure this week because he's got the next thing to do. It's almost like, oh golly, are people going to love me? Will I win? You know what I'm saying? We don't have that every day before God. We know that we are secure because God is gracious. It's not on what we do, it's on what he's done. If we remember this, we become characterized by peace by joy, by freedom, by confidence, by humility. Our concern is to bless rather than to impress. We don't feel the need to defend ourselves. If we forget that God is gracious, we overwork. We make others feel guilty. We envy those more successful. We take criticism badly. We live busy lives and stressed. We do not ask hard questions in case they're asked back. We become shallow if we forget that God is gracious. This can be a huge challenge to us, can't it? But I think Peter is writing to this marginalized group in a society saying, come on, remember, you can feel unfamily by society, but you've got people to stand with you. But let's really stand with one another. What does that really mean? I don't think that he would be writing to a, a, a bunch of people. We think it was about AD 60. It was just before the massive persecution of, of Nero where they burnt a lot of Christians, but it was definitely getting worse. I don't think he'd write to them and say, I'm looking for you just to be superficial and shallow. I'm looking for you to get by another week. I think he'd be writing saying that I'm looking for you to be genuine. I'm looking for you to be real. I'm looking for you to be connected. I'm looking for you to pastor one another. Don't give the badge to one person and say, oh, that's our pastor, they do the job. I think what he's saying is, come on, this is the role that we're all to do. And so actually, you know, I think, wow, that's why you've been involved in a group, you pastor somebody else, they passed the year. I think he's throwing this down. We are to be those that feed upon the truth of God's word as spiritual babies. We're desperate for it, that we could grow up and become more like him. I think surely the goal, and I'll be careful because I know preachers always emphasize what they're talking about that week. I think the goal is not necessarily maturity, uh, community, it's maturity. The goal is not necessarily just actually hell well. I think that's a byproduct of it. I think because we love the word, we live for the word, which means we will be community, that we grow one another up. Because one day we will see him face to face. I'll be honest, if you rebuke me, I won't like it. I'll sulk. I might cry. 
but I'd rather you did it now than he does it then. I'd rather you looked me in the eye and said, Pete, I think you've just made a mistake there. I'd rather you graciously said, and I'd rather say it to one another, actually, come on, guys. I think you're losing your way a bit. I think you had some passion there, and you've just let things slip. I think you've let worry choke you. I'd rather look you in the eye and say that than one day look him in the eye and him just say, look, Pete, for decades, you didn't do it. I gave you opportunity. I gave you time. I gave you energy, but you blew it. I'd love us to be a church that Peter's writing to that says, come on, let's be real, real, genuinely real. Remove the mask. Not just so we can have this lovely, touchy-feely community, but actually so that we can grow up for the day that we're then presented to him. Amen.